Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Gusty winds, drenching rain and coastal flood watches. Tropical storm Ophelia may be losing strength, but it's still affecting the northeast coast. Hollywood writers could be returning to work tomorrow. We look at the WGA's tentative agreement with major studios after a nearly five-month strike. Just five days left before a potential government shutdown, the latest in GOP negotiations and a messaging campaign by the White House about who should bear the blame. More illegal immigrants are being put on buses and sent to cities like New York and Chicago, but this time it's a Democrat behind the move. Senator Menendez is not stepping down, at least for now. The New Jersey lawmaker is defiant toward the federal bribery charges against him. And the special counsel in the Hunter Biden case is allowed to testify before House Republicans. A member of a number of inconsistencies in the timeline led an attorney to say somebody's lying here. The remnants of tropical storm Ophelia are continuing to flood the U.S. east coast. This is while the National Hurricane Center is tracking other storm systems in the Atlantic. Rain from tropical storm Ophelia is lingering in the U.S. northeast and mid-Atlantic. The storm is weakening as it moves up the east coast. Nearly 9 million people from Long Island to southern Maryland were under coastal flood alerts Sunday. Ophelia was at near hurricane strength when it made landfall near Emerald Isle, North Carolina, early Saturday. Now, the National Hurricane Center has its eyes on Tropical Storm Philippe and two other systems. One of the unnamed storm systems is in the Gulf Coast and the other in the Atlantic. Philippe is currently spinning in the Atlantic and forecasters say they don't believe any of the storm systems will pose a threat to the U.S. The Hollywood writer strike could soon be over. Union leaders reached a tentative agreement last night after days of negotiating and a nearly five-month strike. No deal is in the works for striking actors yet. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. The Writers Guild of America, or WGA, said it reached a preliminary labor agreement with major studios on Sunday. The deal could end one of two strikes that have thrown a wrench in Hollywood production and cost California's economy billions of dollars. The terms of the three-year contract are not yet known and still need to be approved by WGA leadership and members before it can take effect. The WGA described the agreement as meaningful gains and protections for writers. The union's negotiating committee said it would only share details after receiving final contract language. Negotiators will then vote on whether to recommend the deal to leadership, who will decide if it's presented to members for a vote. A tentative deal to end the last writer's strike in 2008 was approved by more than 90% of members. WGA concerns include declining revenue streams from traditional television, streaming service issues, and fewer job opportunities. Writers are also worried about the use of AI and want protections to ensure job security. The current 146-day walkout came close to beating the longest strike in WGA history of a 1988 strike that lasted 154 days. The Screen Actors Union remains on strike. The Guild represents around 160,000 film and television actors, stunt performers, voiceover artists and other media professionals. Members walked off the job in July, making it the first time in 63 years that Hollywood has faced a strike by both unions at the same time. The WGA says union members could be authorized to return to work Tuesday before the agreement is officially ratified. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
The deadline for a government shutdown is days away. The White House is directing blame onto Republicans as a new poll shows warning signs for President Biden's 2024 bid. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. As we inch closer to the Saturday deadline for Congress to fund the government, the White House has this message. House Republicans' chaos continues to march us toward an extreme Republican shutdown. We're going to hold them accountable for the reckless cuts they are demanding. And President Biden also calling out Republicans. It's time for Republicans to start doing the job America elected them to do. The finger-pointing comes as some hardline Republicans are opposing spending plans on the table, saying the government spends way too much. You can't keep spending $7 trillion when you're only taking in $5 trillion. That just doesn't work. But the Republican House Speaker says lawmakers should avoid a government shutdown. Why would they want to stop paying the troops or stop paying the border agents or the Coast Guard? But as the White House is using this moment to accuse Republicans of playing political games, a new poll shows that if a government shutdown indeed happens, Americans would pin the blame more on Democrats than on Republicans. The White House defends itself. I can't speak to your polling, but what I can speak is to the facts. This will be a Republican shutdown. Meanwhile, former President Trump on Sunday called on Republicans to shut down the government unless they get everything. He added that whoever is the president will be blamed. And a showdown between Biden and Trump is coming up as both of them are heading to Michigan to talk to striking auto workers. Biden's getting there on Tuesday and Trump will speak on Wednesday. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Turning to the southern border, the wave of illegal migration is still ongoing. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the latest. Democratic El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser says the city has maxed out its capabilities. The city of El Paso only has so many resources and we have come to what we look at a breaking point right now. The city is opening up an overflow shelter to handle the amount of illegal immigrants. The facility can hold about 400 people. But officials say El Paso already has about 6,500 migrants in its custody and is receiving more than 2,000 every day. The city has sheltered over 7,000 illegal immigrants and served more than 16,000 meals in the last 10 days. Mayor Leeser said Saturday that the city chartered five buses to take illegal immigrants to New York, Chicago, and Denver. That's something Republican governors in Texas and Florida have taken heat for. But the Democrat leaser said all the migrants on the El Paso buses were going voluntarily to the cities of their choice. El Paso Emergency Management Director Jorge Rodriguez reacts. They sign a form stating that they're going uh, voluntarily to the destination of their choice. Uh, no one is being forced. Presidential hopeful Senator Tim Scott slammed President Biden's plan to join the UAW picket line in Michigan. Biden posted on social media Friday he is heading to Michigan Tuesday to, quote, stand in solidarity with the men and women of UAW as they fight for a fair share of the value they helped create. In related news, Mexico agreed to deport migrants from its border cities. The move is intended to take the pressure from cities like El Paso, San Diego, and Eagle Pass, Texas. They will also implement more than a dozen actions to prevent migrants from risking their lives by using the railway system to reach the U.S.-Mexico border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has called in the National Guard to help illegal immigrants find work. She says this will turn a crisis into an opportunity. And they've come here in search of one thing, 
one thing. That's the ability to work. Work leads them to a better life. And literally, people coming up to me at this statewide meeting of businesses saying, Governor, can you send me some of the migrants? I need them to work. So we can do this. Hochul says there are over 400,000 job openings in New York State right now in fields ranging from farming and construction to restaurants and hotels. The governor has called in 150 additional National Guard members to help the illegal immigrants get work permits. This brings the total number of guardsmen focusing on this task to 250. New York City officials say the city has over 100,000 illegal immigrants. Mayor Eric Adams said earlier this month that the influx would destroy New York City. Not stepping down, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez today says the bribery charges against him are false, even going as far as indicating a possible rerun. NTD's Arian Pastar has more. The allegations leveled against me are just that. Allegations. Democratic New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez on Monday denying allegations of bribery. He also shortly touched upon his political future, but stopped short of formally announcing a rerun. I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. Authorities found around half a million dollars stuffed in envelopes and clothing at the senator's home. He allegedly took money from Egyptian nationals in return for political benefits which enriched the Egyptian government, such as military aid. Menendez on Monday commented on the cash and the allegations regarding Egypt. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies. Throughout my 30 years in the House of Representatives and the Senate, I have always worked to hold accountable those countries, including Egypt, for human rights abuses. Menendez hired attorney Abi Lowell to defend him at the trial. That's the same attorney who's defending Hunter Biden in his gun charges case. Also on Monday, a reporter asked the White House if there's still space for the senator in the Democrat Party. Any decision that he has to make, that's certainly going to be up to him and the Senate leadership to decide. But of course we see this as a serious matter. The senator did step down as the chair of the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's required to do so under Senate Democratic Caucus rules. His trial is set to start on Wednesday. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Why did special counsel David Weiss let serious allegations against Hunter Biden expired? Why was Weiss even appointed special counsel? The DOJ says House Republicans will be allowed to question him, but hasn't committed to a time. In the meantime, Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, provides an analysis of the Hunter Biden case. Paul Kaminar, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Sure. Glad to be here. Thank you. Paul, to begin, the DOJ is saying that David Weiss, who's the special prosecutor for the Hunter Biden case, can testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee. What's at stake here? Well, I'm glad to hear that they're saying that he can't testify because uh, there was the argument that since he's now been appointed as special counsel, that he could uh, decline to testify on the grounds that he's currently investigating Hunter Biden. As we know, he filed the gun charges in Delaware, and we're waiting for the tax charges to be filed here in D.C. or California. So he may uh, uh, say to the committee, hey, look, uh, I'm, I'm not able to testify because I got an active investigation. But I think if, if Mary Garland is saying, 
yeah, he can testify. Well, that's great. Now, what he can testify about may be a different matter, but the one thing he has to testify about is the whole issue of how he became appointed to be a special counsel, because that whole issue is totally confusing. Merrick Garland says one thing, Weiss says another. Weiss said he's always uh, had power to file charges against Hunter in any jurisdiction. Then he walked that back. Uh, Merrick Garland said he does have that power. But before he appointed a special counsel in June, when he was asked, why don't you appoint him as special counsel? He said, oh, uh, Weiss has more authority as a regular U.S. attorney than he would as a special counsel. So does it mean he has less authority now, now that he's been appointed a special counsel? The whole thing is totally double talk uh, and obfuscation, and they, they've got to clear this up because somebody's lying here. Now, in terms of the House Judiciary Committee potentially with advice testifying, what line of questioning should they take with him? Well, they should clearly get into the uh, issue of uh, what communications he had with Mayor Garland. Mayor Garland basically said he's left it all to Weiss to do everything, uh, but they need to get all communications between Weiss and the Justice Department. Uh, it may not have been with Mayor Garland, but it could have been with uh, his deputy, Elisa Monaco, and other people there. And the other thing is, when the statute of limitations was running on these tax charges, when Mayor Garland was asked the other day during the uh, oversight committee hearing as to, you know, did he allow that to expire? And, and, and Mayor Garland said, hey, I, I leave it all to Weiss, but wait a minute, you're the attorney general at a minimum, you should have, you know, contacted Weiss and said, hey, these charges are about to expire under the statute of limitations for the 2014-2015. What are you doing over there? Uh, he doesn't have to uh, micromanage the, the prosecution, to be sure, but as the attorney general, he's responsible for the overall running of all the U.S. attorney's office. And clearly, he uh, fell down on the job here. Critics are pointing to that statute of limitations running out, saying that why slow ran this probe. But others are saying, you know, just the fact that he is indicting Hunter Biden on these gun charges is proving that he is not partisan. He's apolitical. What's your take on all of this? Well, he had to file the charges because he had a sweetheart deal uh, in Delaware a few weeks ago that blew up in his face. So clearly, uh, he had no choice but to indict him on the gun charges. Uh, and and uh, also now we have to see about the tax charges, because the tax charges were two bit misdemeanors in Delaware, which were clearly felonies as the whistleblowers testified. So it remains to be seen whether Weiss will do the right thing. And in the larger picture, how do you see the Hunter Biden cases playing out? Well, good point. Uh, on, the, on the gun charge case, uh, his attorney, Abby Lowe, uh, maintains he still has an agreement from the Delaware case to have a diversion agreement where he's not prosecuted at all. But the bottom line is he was also charged with filling out the form for the application for the license and lying on it, saying he's not a drug user. And there's a recent case that says, hey, if you falsely fill out a form, that in of itself is a felony, regardless if the underlying 
uh, disqualification turns out to be unconstitutional. So there's no way Hunter can escape this gun charge. But the gun charge is basically icing on the cake. The main cake is the tax uh, evasion charges. And I'd like to see this cake built before we add the icing to the cake. Paul Kaminar, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Anytime. On the campaign trail today, former President Trump is kicking off a busy week with a rally in South Carolina. This as other GOP candidates are gearing up for a second debate on Wednesday. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. Trump is slated to stop in Detroit, Michigan to meet with striking auto workers. He won't be attending the GOP debate. Turning to Trump's opponent, President Biden will also be visiting Michigan and plans to join union workers on the picket line tomorrow. According to an ABC poll, ratings for the president's economic and immigration policies are at an all-time low, with an overall disapproval rating of 56 percent. And three-fourths of those who disapprove of Biden said they approve of Trump. The former president's approval beats Biden's 51 to 42 percent in the latest poll. And coming up, it's happening. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is slated to debate his rival governor, Gavin Newsom, from California. Find out the latest from the two statesmen. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoes a bill that would require courts to consider gender affirmation in custody battles. But he signs a bill mandating gender-neutral bathrooms in schools. And California law enforcement groups are urging the governor to veto a bill that would legalize psychedelic drugs. The bill is already on his desk. We'll have details after the break. Welcome back. Two rival U.S. statesmen set to clash again, this time face-to-face. California Governor Gavin Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are debating soon with Fox News hosting. The event will take place on November 30th in Georgia, and talk show host Sean Hannity will be the moderator. A showdown between the two has been in the works for months, since both governors agreed to a debate earlier this summer. Despite speculations of a 2024 presidential run, Newsom recently said that he would not compete against President Biden. Newsom and DeSantis have been at odds with each other on multiple issues, including border security and the handling of illegal immigrants. California's governor has vetoed a bill that would require courts to consider parents' affirmation of their child's gender in custody cases. At the same time, he signed a bill to require gender-neutral bathrooms in schools. NTD's Eileen Eng has more. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed AB 957, which would require gender identity to be considered in custody battles. In a statement late Friday night, Newsom said, A court under existing law is required to consider a child's health, safety, and welfare when determining the best interests of a child in these proceedings, including the parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity. For these reasons, I cannot sign this bill. Critics have called out AB 957, saying children barely know how to make decisions on a daily basis, so letting them make permanent decisions on themselves could hurt them in the long run. 
alcohol, register to vote, vote uh, fight in our military. When you can't do any of that until you're 18 or 21, why is it acceptable that our children can um, have irreversible surgeries that then require medications for the rest of their life? We applaud the governor for vetoing that bill. That was the right move. Unfortunately, there are radicalized judges and social workers and uh, school officials who are not waiting for a law. They're getting out ahead of it, and uh, they are deeming parents who don't go along with the LGBTQ uh, affirmative agenda uh, to be unfit parents. The overall message is that each citizen in California needs to stand up if they want to save the next generation of children and that we have the power and the know-how how to stop these bills as we showed with stopping AB 957. However, Newsom signed a different gender-related bill into law this past weekend. Schools serving 1st through 12th grade must now have at least one gender-neutral bathroom available for students by 2026. The bill comes amid debates in California and elsewhere about the rights of transgender and non-binary students, including whether teachers should notify parents if their child changes pronouns at school. And for analysis of the governor's veto and its implications for future legislation on parental rights and gender affirmation, we spoke with a reporter for the Epic Times who has been following these issues closely. Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. So California Governor Gavin Newsom just recently vetoed this bill that would have required custody courts to weigh parental support of their children's gender identities. What was the response to his veto? Were people surprised? I think there was some surprise there. Um, you know, in California, of course, you know, the Republicans were praising this move. Um, and Democrats, especially the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, um, that's very strong there in California, um, you know, they were very disappointed um, about this because they see, you know, Governor Newsom as as their champion, you know, champion of transgender rights in that state. And of course, California is probably the most liberal state there is in terms of transgenderism uh, and supporting that for children. So I, I would imagine, yes, that there was a little bit of surprise and disappointment on um, both sides, or at least on the Democratic side, and some surprise on the Republican side as well. And Darlene, you actually cover family issues, especially in regards to parental rights. So what would have been the impact if this had passed? Well, I, I think, actually, I think it would have been devastating, honestly. Um, I think it would have been a parent that didn't feel like that their child should be making such a decision, you know, like, they're even saying, you know, eight, nine, and there's some places, of course, they're saying that they can decide at toddler's age, you know, that they're transgender. I think that would be very devastating. It would also incentivize uh, parents to go ahead and affirm. So, you know, there may be some reluctancy on one part, um, you know, or one side of that equation. And then when you're getting to court and it comes down to who's going to get custody of that child, and you say you do not support that child, then that judge would have had to have leaned the other way and given parental rights to the party that did affirm the child. And zooming out a bit, California is a transgender sanctuary state. So to begin, what, what does that mean? 
Well, that that's very interesting, and I don't think there's been a challenge in the court system yet on this. But what it means is that if a state such as Texas or Florida um, that has passed laws against, you know, given children hormones or surgery to to change their gender, um, you know, to whatever their preferred gender might be. Um, if they leave and go to California, for example, which is a transgender um, sanctuary state, then the state could kind of take custody of that situation of them temporarily. Uh, it's a temporary emergency custody to allow them to get the care that they um need according to it probably as a parent, one parent taking that child to that state or both parents, allowing them to go ahead and get that transgender care. I want to zoom in and expand on that. You've written about this before. What is the impact on the parents, especially like in that example where one parent is in a different state? Yes, um, actually this very scenario happened here in Texas. Um, there was a parental battle, um, a father, um, his name is Jeff Younger, and he was fighting uh, for custody of his two twins. Um, his um, ex-wife uh, was a pediatrician. She said that, you know, one of the twins was uh, transgender and started dressing the twin in dresses. Um, it was a little boy who said he was a girl and started, you know, obliging what she thought was, you know, the child's wishes, dressing them in dresses, changing the name at school, the, you know, the pronouns, all that. And he was definitely against that. You know, he said this wasn't happening at his house. When the children would come over to his house, his his son didn't want to wear a dress. So, you know, they battled this out in court. And then finally what happened um, late last year, um, she took both of the twins and relocated to California with the approval of a uh, Dallas judge. And at that point, he, he uh, actually asked the uh, Texas Supreme Court to weigh in on that matter. Wow. And you mentioned how a lot of other states look at California as a leader in a way in this regard. So following Governor Gavin Newsom's veto, what might we expect to see from other states in terms of custody cases, especially? I think that that might be a bit of a, you know, wet blanket on those out there who are trying to push similar legislation, you know, progressives. I think they might look at this and say, well, you know, this might not work out. You know, Governor Newsom's uh, explanation was that, you know, he didn't want the legislative branch to get involved with the judicial branch, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, force some sort of decision there and get those, um, you know, entwined in disputes. But, of course, cynics out there are saying, you know, Gavin Newsom is running for president. He's running for the Democratic, um, you know, spot on the ticket. Uh, you know, that's what, of course, a lot of speculation is about. Governor, Governor Newsom himself has said, I'm not doing that. However, people assume that he is. And so this could be a nod to um, the more moderate uh, faction of voters out there that, look, you know, I'm, I'm not this far left, you know, uh, governor, that I could indeed govern, you know, moderates and, and look at both sides of, of an issue if I were president. Quite fascinating indeed. Well, Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Also in California, some law enforcement and community leaders are urging Governor Newsom to veto a bill that would legalize psychedelic drugs. They say the substances are harmful and the proposed law would decrease public safety. NTD's David Lamb has the details. I represent all elected sheriffs in the state of California. 
I can tell you that we strongly oppose this bill. Leaders in law enforcement sent letters to California Governor Gavin Newsom this month regarding Senate Bill 58, legalization of psychedelics, which is on the governor's desk. They say it's a danger to human society. Dealing with people who are high on hallucinogens and or uh, any other types of drug poses severe issues which are alarming for law enforcement. In a webinar on Monday, leaders in healthcare, victim groups, and community organizations spoke against SB 58, which would legalize the possession of psilocybin in small amounts, a substance found in magic mushrooms. The author, State Senator Scott Weiner, says California's veterans, first responders, and others struggling with PTSD, depression, and addiction deserve access to these promising plant medicines. We should not ask our veterans to try the psychedelics to be guinea pigs. Some, like Sheriff Boudreau, worry that law enforcement may need more funding to train officers on handling increases in substance-related incidents. Others say the bill could be the first major step in legalizing all illegal drugs in California. They're concerned for college campuses. But I would point out that for juveniles, those under 18, guess what? Possession is only an infraction. That's not enough of a criminal um, hurdle to keep them from using. Infractions can result in a fine, but not jail time. People presume that the government is taking care of them, but in many cases, the laws are passed for different reasons. It's fine that these things may have some kind of a medical use in a medical setting, but that's the only place for it. The rest of it is brain damaging. The bill also legalizes the growing of any spores or mycelium capable of producing mushrooms or other materials that contain psilocybin. If signed by Newsom, the bill would take effect by January 2025. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, just days left until the U.S. government has to stop spending money. What does Congress need to do and how would a shutdown impact you? Russian airstrikes hit grain facilities in a major Ukrainian port city. Ukraine also announces new gains in its counteroffensive against Russian forces. And Meta is targeting children in its upcoming launch of chatbots with personalities. But is the content appropriate for kids? Find out after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Storm Ophelia brings rain along the U.S. East Coast. Hurricane forecasters now have their eyes on three new storm systems in the Atlantic, but they are not expected to pose a threat to the U.S. The Hollywood writer strike could soon be over as union leaders reached a tentative agreement, but no deal is in the works for striking actors yet. New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez addressed the bribery charges he's facing. He denied all the allegations and said he won't resign. A government shutdown is only five days away. President Biden pins the blame on Republicans, while House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says lawmakers should work to avoid it. With just days to go until the government runs out of money, federal agencies have started planning to suspend non-essential operations. We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma about the potential impacts on Americans' wallets. 
Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. Don, to begin, what would be the impact on Americans and their finances? Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, first of all, let's keep in mind that a government shutdown is actually not the end of the world. Uh, according to Representative Andy Briggs uh, of Arizona, that uh, a so-called shutdown is really just a pause in non-essential federal spending. But as for the impact, uh, the direct effect will be on the nearly 4 million Americans who are federal employees. Uh, essential workers uh, will remain on the job, but others will be temporarily dismissed until the shutdown ends. And none of them actually will be paid during the impasse uh, if it happens. Uh, for many of them, a shutdown would in fact strain their finances, just, uh, just like it did in the 35-day funding lapse uh, just a few years ago. Uh, during that time, people across the country actually uh, returned holiday presents because they needed the cash. Uh, some of them missed mortgage payments, took out short-term loans, and ran up their uh, credit card debt because they had no paychecks for an entire month, Tiffany. Some serious consequences there. And what about those who don't work for the government? What's the impact there? Yeah, so for regular Americans, uh, the impact will be um, for those who are thinking of traveling, the White House is sounding alarms about massive disruptions to air travel at, uh, as tens of thousands of air traffic controllers and transportation security administration personnel work without pay. And if we look back to the 2019 shutdown, actually hundreds of TA, TSA officers called out from work because many of them actually had to find other ways to make money. And during that shutdown, we also saw uh, impacts for people who are on federal programs for, for rent because it caused uncertainty for tens of thousands of low-income tenants. Um, these tenants uh, rely on the federal government to help pay their rent. But the main takeaway here is, you know, stay out of debt, right? Keep, keep cash savings on hand and try diversifying your investments. But, you know, of course, these are just general good uh, advice for, for personal finance uh, overall. Indeed. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiffany. Ukraine says it has killed a Russian commander while Russia launches another airstrike on a Ukrainian port city. Here's the update. Russian combat drones and cruise missiles on Monday destroyed grain and port facilities at Ukraine's Black Sea port of Odessa. The attacks were part of an air campaign that has made it harder for Ukraine to export its grain. Ukrainian authorities said four people were killed. The strike hit infrastructure next to the port. A seaport building and a hotel, which were not operational for many years, were destroyed. The enemy thought the facilities was a center for decision-making and hit it. Two Onyx missiles hit grain storage facilities that were destroyed. The strikes have intensified as Ukraine presses on with a counteroffensive in the Black Sea and Crimea. Also on Monday, Ukraine said it had killed Admiral Viktor Sokolov, the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, in an attack last week on the fleet headquarters in Crimea. Russia confirmed the attack but has not commented on the alleged death of the commander. And speaking of Ukraine's counteroffensive, the first U.S.-made Abrams tanks have arrived in Ukraine. Roughly 31 Abrams tanks will be delivered to help with the counteroffensive in the upcoming weeks. Chatbots with personalities that are geared toward children. Meta, formerly Facebook, is planning to launch these chatbots as soon as this week. How safe will their content be? NGD's Faye Quarter asks some AI experts.
Meta is targeting children by creating chatbots with personalities. These include Bob the Robot, who calls himself a sass master general, with superior intellect, sharp wit, and biting sarcasm, according to documents seen by the Wall Street Journal. Another character is Alvin the Alien, who says the human species fascinates him. He asks you to share your experiences, thoughts, and emotions. Another bot named Gavin reportedly made lewd references to women and said, when you're with a girl, it's all about the experience. And if she's barfing on you, that's definitely an experience. I personally don't think um, that they're going to be able to effectively um, manage this particular risk. Um, I, can th I think they'll only attempt to, to do so. Abbas Moladina is the co-founder of generative AI firm Umaker. What his firm does is very similar to what Meta is trying to do, which is having AI generate text. Moladina doesn't think Meta will be able to stop the offensive content. What they've shown, unfortunately, based on their history, is an inability um, to you know, monitor the content that comes out on uh, on the, on the platform. A recent study found that giving generative AI a personality can increase the unpleasantness of what it generates. Depending on the type of personality, the offensiveness can increase by a factor of six. Examples include inappropriate stereotypes, harmful dialogue, and hurtful opinions. For example, a chatbot with the personality of a bad person says about religion X, why should I care about religion X? It's just another useless religion that brainwashes people. And let's not forget about how they worship statues of some fat guy. Chatbots can be a great technology even for younger children, but perhaps in the context of uh, trusted platforms and partners. Alexander de Ritter is the co-founder of AI firm Inc. for All. He believes Meta won't fully moderate its content, but he says the technology could still be very useful. The same technology could be used uh, by educational institutions like school districts, parents, to um, to create and give chatbots a personality that is helpful for their children and allows them to learn complex topics with, um, with help, helpful assistance. Meta will be launching its chatbots sometime this week. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up in the NFL, a Taylor Swift sighting in Kansas City nearly upstages a near-record-breaking performance in Miami. And our governments working against farmers who supply food to the world. We look at a new epic original documentary exploring that question. Find out more after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty of NFL excitement over the weekend. What were some of your takeaways? Well, Taylor Swift being at the Chiefs game drew the biggest headlines. But Miami scoring 70 points, uh, that was probably the biggest shocker for me. I mean, that, that's the most in the NFL in more than 50 years. Uh, I really can't remember a Sean Payton coach team getting beat that badly. I mean, Miami ran it and passed it at will. Elsewhere, the Cowboys losing to the Cardinals, that was a shocker. Maybe they're down because of Trayvon Diggs' injury. Um, but either way, they did not look like the Super Bowl contenders that I think they are uh, yesterday. And speaking of which, you've identified the Cowboys along with the Niners and Eagles as being the early NFC Super Bowl contenders. What about the AFC? 
Well, certainly the Chiefs, they finally looked at yesterday. I don't know if they needed Taylor Swift in the house or what, but they looked dominant. Buffalo beating Washington, they certainly looked like it. Now, before the season started, I would have said Cincinnati, but Joe Burrow's calf injury raises all kinds of question marks. He's not looking the same. I think you can put Miami there now, just not just because they scored 70 points yesterday, but they're 3-0. Tua Tungvaloa looks great. They just really need to keep him healthy. And looking at the college game, Notre Dame lost in somewhat bizarre fashion Saturday when they had just 10 men on the field. What did you make of that? Yeah, it's uh, it's tough to win 10 versus 11, uh, that's for sure. And, you know, they did that for the final two plays. And Ohio State ran the ball right where it looked like that extra, that defender should have been. Now, Notre Dame's head coach Marcus Freeman said he did notice it at the last second, but he didn't have a timeout. He would have got a penalty for running a guy on there. But they were only at the one-yard line. It would have been a half-yard penalty. I don't know. It's a tough call either way. But I've never seen such a big game decided in such a strange fashion. That was truly bizarre. And now shifting gears to baseball with just a week left in the regular season. What pennant races are still going on? Yeah, there's, there's actually several of them, especially in the AOS. You've really got three teams going for two playoff spots. Now, the Rangers, they should take the division. They've got a two-game lead with, like, six left. Then you've got Seattle versus Houston going for that last spot. Now, Houston, I don't, want to, I don't know what to make of them. They're, they're their World Series champs, but they just got swept by the Royals. They do have Verlander going tonight against Seattle, which means they'll get him one more start. Uh, so I tend to think that they, they get that last uh, final playoff spot. Well, Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. Are governments worldwide actively working against the farmers and ranchers who supply food to the world? That question is explored in a new epic original documentary. The red carpet premiere of the Epoch original documentary, No Farmers, No Food, Will You Eat the Bugs?, was presented during the Stop 30 by 30 Summit in Irving, Texas. You go to the store, food is there. You hear some murmurings about farmers having problems, but you don't really see it. But we went out and we spoke with farmers uh, in Europe, Asia, and even, even in the heartland here in America, and it's true. Like. The government regulations are really, really hurting them, putting them out of business, uh, forcing them off their land, and making it unprofitable to do farming. Host of Epoch TV program Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, is the movie's host and director. The film talks about world governments going against farmers and their work in the name of environmental protection. Balmakov says this trend is leading to a global food crisis and a scenario like China's famine in the 1950s due to Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward policy. So right now it's like Agenda 2030, it sounds very good, we're going to save the planet, save the water, save the air, but what I want to avoid is a situation where a hundred years from now we'll look back on this period of time and say, Agenda 2030, that was, a, that was a rough famine that killed a billion people, you know. The Stop 30 by 30 summit was held by Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller and American Stewards of Liberty. The summit is a movement against the Biden administration's plan called 30 by 30, which aims to take away lands and waters for conservation and the environment. It's one thing to lose your farm to farm crisis because that's, you know, economic things, but to have your government coming after you and your land and your occupation it just it just breaks my heart 
it was said that you could tear down the cities, but if you left the farms intact, the cities would be re rebuilt as if by magic. But if you tear down the farms, leave the cities, the cities will decay and crumble. Almost 200 attendees watched the film. Many of them say it's a must-see for all. If you enjoy having abundant, affordable food on your table, you need to watch this documentary so you understand how it works. I think it's really super important they watch it just for the, uh, the education. And then at that point, if you know, then, then you can be a voice and do something about it. So my advice is to go see No Farmers, No Food. To watch the full documentary on Epoch TV, visit nofarmersnofood.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.